Fresh Economic Thinking podcast. New ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Hi, Cameron. Good to chat again. G'day, Jonathan. Good to be here. Yeah, if there's a strange sound, it's because I'm using my laptop mic and I'm in Thailand. So forgive listeners, forgive us. Uh, be back to better quality soon. Um, I noticed an interesting question you posted on Twitter for the world to consider, or at least for your followers to consider. Uh, what are the things that you notice day to day when you travel that make you think this is a rich country and vice versa? One for me is the quality and sophistication of tools that workers use. You see it when passing construction sites. So go forth and discuss, Cameron, what sparked this and what kind of answers did you get? Yeah, so I've, I've been traveling a little lately and also teaching economics. And one of the uh, topics is always GDP and growth and how do you get growth and what's included in GDP. And then you end up talking about capital investment. Um, and it's all very abstract when you think about it. You're sort of saying, well, you know, a pipeline and a bridge is capital, a building's capital. And the question you know, I, I had is, well, you know, lots of countries have fancy buildings, you know, a lot of poor or developing countries have iconic large buildings. China's very good at building high rises and very, um, you know, intimidating looking buildings. But my question was more, but day to day in your life, what is it? What is it that makes you feel like it's a rich country? And one of the things that was on my mind was a, a photo that came across my Twitter feed during the Florida hurricane recently. And it was a photo of hundreds of um, linemen with their trucks, you know, the guys who put the power lines up and, and fix those things. And I'm just sitting there thinking there, there just really aren't that many countries, let alone cities or states that could pull together hundreds and hundreds of these really expensive, sophisticated, um, you know, trucks with all their equipment and cranes and lifts and hardware and tools. There just really aren't that many. And and that's sort of one of those, you know, signs of wealth that, that you've got this really advanced tools and equipment for all the, the day-to-day mundane things. Now, a poor country might have a good power network, um, but does it just have that many skilled people with all the right equipment waiting around in case something happens. And that, that, that was just something uh, for me that, that got triggered, but the, the result, the comments are interesting. Don't you think, did you read some Jonathan? I sure did. Um, yeah. Some of them were about um, things like, you know, what you said, but also um, the smell of um, <laughs> the environment, you know, rotting sewage or sorry, rotting vegetables or sewage or um, the quality of train stations. Um, uh, what else was there? Um, uh, footpaths was one that got a, yes. um, a few likes. And that's, that's something I definitely notice. If you go to a, uh, a wealthy country, there's always a nice footpath to walk on. And then, you know, if the country's not that wealthy, it just never seems to be a priority. Yeah. One thing that occurred to me, because, I mean, obviously I'm 
right now I'm in a place which is now considered a media, middle income country, but um, yes, to the developing country is um, the degree to which the free market, I would say, is allowed to flourish in the realm of everyday life. You might call it an informal economy. It's taken for granted in the less developed world that you can set up a food cart and sell something, cut pineapple or noodles or whatever from a cart or from outside your house. And in the rich world, people talk about how important the free market is, but the real world yeah. would be the opposite. We're reflecting other priorities, i.e. the council would say, no, you can't sell food from a cart, you're obstructing the pavement, you're attracting cockroaches, you're creating a hazard, people have to walk on the road, blah, blah, blah. You can't run a business from outside your house, it you know, creates too much traffic or noise for the neighbours. So the reality, I think, in rich countries is we're, we're the furthest from the free market because we have other priorities apart from survival. What do you reckon? Oh, look, that makes a lot of sense to me and i think it's it's partly because we do have the experience of big effective private companies doing their things that we you know it it, it there's little extra to gain from that right another mcdonald's on the street or an extra this or that um you know we feel the big gains are more in that social infrastructure so yeah it definitely makes sense that um you know <laughs> that you always talk about what you don't have more than what you have. I do like that observation, by the way. I'm, I'm sort of surprised now that you've you said it that that no one else did. I got you know hundred replies to that or something. Maybe I should As add rich... it to the tweet Twitter feed to the Twitter <laughs> stream. Should. You should, but you know it, it. It's amazing what you can sort of see day to day and the sort of priorities of the culture or the values of the people the way um you know the, the way we prioritize one thing or the other so yeah it's it, yeah. anyway it, it was a good discussion um the other things like i was thinking about um uh, something you said almost as a throwaway in the previous one um that in the previous episode about yeah, people are not very good at calculating their effective marginal tax rate um so they don't really know if it's worthwhile getting a pay rise or you know whatever or if it's all going to be cancelled out and I, I got responses from people i know who listen who are also you know interested in this idea mm -hmm. of the way our tax system and our benefit systems and our means tested um various means tested in uh, systems that well benefits we have basically make it impossible to work out what your effective tax rate is and i said to you um i would really like to be able to figure out mine like is it worthwhile me pushing you know, trying to get a pay rise of 20 grand or not like what what can i do to find out <laughs> what can you do to find out look that to be honest that's it is actually really difficult so um so the the sort of good rule of thumb is that the highest effective marginal tax rate. So the effective marginal tax rate is how much of the extra dollar of income you get when you get a pay rise do you lose? How much, and, and you lose it either in the form of tax, right? As a share of that dollar, or you lose some because your income went up. And so a welfare benefit phases out perhaps at 40 cents in the dollar. So you might be taxed 30 cents and you might have a family tax benefit or a welfare benefit that phases out at 40 cents in the dollar. So you earn an extra dollar and you only get 30 cents more income in your bank after everyone's taken their share. So the effective marginal tax rate there would be 70%. Now, 
those tax rates are very tricky to work out because they depend on your family situation, how many kids you've got, whether you've got a hex debt, uh, which has now helped it, um, whether you have one partner working or both partners working, all those sorts of things. So it's very tricky. When I had young kids and we had family benefits and hence had a fairly high effective marginal tax rate, I actually asked Australia's leading expert on this exact topic, Dave Plunkett. He's uh, now retired, but he has a very large spreadsheet where you can input all of your uh, household details, input all of the, update all of the types of welfare benefit and taxes and thresholds and work it out, um, work out what your effective marginal tax rate is. And yeah, there are certain income ranges where it can be nearly 100%. So I'm just looking at the chart that Dave sent me 10 years ago. Oh no, here we go. Four years ago. I'm exaggerating. And if you are a single income couple with two children, ages seven and 10, with a help debt and no private health insurance, if you are earning $35,000 a year, you end up with about $57,000 in your pocket. You get that because the tax you pay is less than the benefits you get, right? Because you've got children and you're only earning $35,000 per year and there's four people in your household. But if you then go and work an extra day a week and earn 45000 a year, so an extra 10000 you actually get no extra money in your pocket. You get that same $57,000 at the end of the year because every extra dollar you earn, you lose um, you lose a dollar <laughs> uh, of benefit of benef combined benefits and taxes, and so we call that sort of thing a welfare trap in the economics literature, where you have designed a tax system to incentivize working less rather than more because you earn more money when you work less, and those happen in Australia's system because we have these targeted welfare payments, especially to family, because. We've got this political paranoia about middle income uh, welfare, right? Uh, middle class welfare. And so what we do is we, instead of having middle class welfare and middle class taxes, which you can do, we have this really tight phase out of welfare benefits, which creates this effective tax on people who are just below uh, the sort of middle income, middle incomes for their household. So yeah, it's a pretty um, crazy situation. And it, it's one of those things that every economist agrees on, yet it's so difficult to achieve any change on this uh, politically. It's just such a low priority. And often we actually completely ignore this and, and change what the welfare and tax system. So for example, um, the hex debt, you know, the higher education loans system we have. Um, what happens in that? Instead of taking a percent of extra every extra dollar, once you earn over a certain amount, you have to pay an additional lump sum. So there are situations where, for example, if you go from you know, seventy-seven thousand dollars of income to eighty-three thousand dollars of income. 
because you jump that threshold, you have to pay more than the extra $6,000 in hex back. So you actually go backwards by earning more, right? Because not only do you have to pay you know, 60 cents in the dollar um, of additional taxes or lose, loss in benefit, you have to pay this additional lump sum in, in a hex repayment. So it's, it's very, very perverse, some of these things. Uh, and, you know, I've got a personal interest in this and I definitely want it to attract more attention. So, Jonathan, do you have any idea what your effective marginal tax rate would be? Have you um, had a pay rise recently and wondered, gee, why is my bank account not going up as much as I thought? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, yep. yeah. So the funny thing was I actually had a friend um, tell me, oh, yeah, I got that pay rise. It was an extra $10,000. And they were telling me about all the spending they were preparing to do to spend that $10,000 uh, of extra money, right? Which which makes sense. You're getting a $10,000 pay rise. Oh, okay, maybe there's some tax, but pretty much I've got most of it. And knowing their household situation, I remember sitting them down and saying, hey, maybe just take it easy and don't commit to you know, these purchases and holidays and whatnot, because I suspect you're not really going to have much more money at all at the end of the day. And I walked them through, you realize you've got to pay this much tax and you know your family benefit or whatever is going to fall by this much. And so you think you got 10 grand, but you might have probably 2000 and pot potentially less. So please don't yeah. spend more than that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and uh, what the listener, who's also a colleague of mine, shared with me a really principled and detailed critique of this kind of mess that we have. Um, and it's David Sligar, I think. Is that how you pronounce it? Sligar. Sligar. Yeah. Sligar. S L I G A R. And he writes uh, Western Sydney Wonk blog. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think we might. Wanna, and like the you know the article that I was provided was called "Credible Tax and Welfare Reform Must Tackle the Means Testing Mess," um, and yeah, maybe we can have a further discussions on this, even maybe including someone like David um, in the future. Yeah, we should, and I'll, we'll put a link to uh, that article in in the show notes. Hey? Yeah, let's do that. Um, and moving on from this, we had. I saw on your Substack an article called an article called Capital Gains are Income Incomes are Capital Gains. And you were doing a critique, but I must say I couldn't quite grasp everything in <laughs> your argument. So take us through it. Yeah. So one of the um one of the really interesting and important features of Australia's tax system, and in fact New Zealand's and America's and Canada. And, and most is that we create these distinctions between types of gains and we call some wages and labor gains and we sort of call some capital gains and we we treat them differently 
we instead of just saying, well, your change in net worth this year was X, we're going to tax you on that. We say, well, your change in the net worth this year was X, but half X came from a special type of thing where uh, you, you bought a special type of thing called an asset and traded it. And the other part came from a special type of thing called your wages. And we'll tax that differently. Uh, and my point in this is merely that this distinction between where the game, the gains come from that we tax is contrived. It's a custom. It is a uh, convention. It is not a um, natural feature of the economy or of human society. So let me try and give you the simplest example. Um, so I can create a um a sort of uh, a company with myself and one other person let's just say and we're both shareholders now we can generate gains in that company and we can distribute the residual the the, the gains that we get um, either by paying ourselves a wage or by issuing shares to each other or give granting sweat equity, we'll call it, right? So um, you can think of it as, you know, you earn income in your company, your company has a bank account, it goes up. Now, the way you can get that money out of that company bank account is either as an employee, as a salary, or as an owner, as a dividend or as um, a share that I can sell, right? So this, it's a convention, the way we distribute the gains. And all my point is saying uh, here is that if every employee was their own company, right? And you could say, well, you're not employing me. You're, con you're contracting my company and my company's bank account went, goes up. And to get that money out, I'm going to sell that company with its money in the bank to someone else. And that would be a capital gain. But instead, I'm working for wages, and that's a different type of uh, way to distribute the gains, and I get taxed differently. I get taxed at the full rate, but if it's a capital gain, I get taxed at half the rate. So does does that help clarify it all? Um, yep. yep, but are you, are you saying it's... Um... It's a mistake it's to do it this way and it's wrong and we should um, change? Well, uh, yeah, in a way I'm saying if we're going to talk about the capital gains discount and how unfair it is um, to tax, for example, of what people call a real loss. So I buy an asset at one price and I sell it at a price that might be 10% higher in 10 years, but inflation's gone up 20%, some people say, well, that's a real loss, right? I only made 10%, but inflation's 20%. Therefore, you shouldn't tax a real loss. My argument is, well, that doesn't make any sense because all, all gains are nominal gains. Just as if I invested hundreds of thousands of dollars becoming a doctor, right? And then in the future, doctor's salaries weren't as high as I thought, I would make a real loss on that previous investment on my education when I earn my income as a doctor. And nobody is out there arguing that I should get some kind of special tax discount because my, my real gains were not as high as I thought. Whereas if we call that investment, you know, buying a doctor's surgery, 
uh, a business and then later selling the doctor's surgery, people go, oh, no, you've got to preserve their returns. You can't tax their nominal gains. So we have this really arbitrary uh, distinction. And uh, so my, my point really is that, look, you can convert labor incomes into capital incomes uh, quite flexibly, right? So there's no obvious reason why we should treat them different for tax purposes. Um, we could easily just call every employee a company, call their household a business, right? Let them subtract all their expenses for running the business and their wages would be the revenue from selling their service, right? <laughs> And then we'd have this leftover bit, which would be our, our gain in our equity value. And we could sell that to someone else. And then we would just be, you know, all getting capital gains rather than wages. So the distinction's artificial. That's my point. And there's yeah. a huge debate in the US, right? There's a thing called the carried interest tax loophole. And the way that operates is money managers who essentially charge a service fee, um, they, they have had this sort of, uh, law written in a way that says, uh, no, this is not a service I'm providing you. Uh, this is me taking sweat equity in your assets. And so when I make a gain, it's actually a capital gain, not a wage income or a business income. So uh, that's a, been a long time sort of tax loophole that really illustrates that you can arbitrarily label <laughs> how you share gains as labor as wages or capital gains so the distinctions an artificial accounting choice not an economic reality was the point and i guess in that uh, argument you're uh, on the same page as uh, david slugger because you're talking about artificial distinctions that don't have a sound kind of philosophical or policy basis um, yeah yeah and to be clear his dave's view on on um that distinction is economists say, well, a tax is bad, right? So you get when someone earns an extra dollar, they get less than a dollar. Yet a means tested or tightly targeted welfare system is good, even though that implies that when you earn money, uh, you get less than that dollar extra because you're getting less welfare. The net effect is identical, but we've, mm -hmm. through convention, just called it something different and somehow just forgotten that the underlying economics is the same. <laughs> so interesting, really interesting, yeah. The more I learn about this, the, the, the more disillusioned I am with economic policy makers and like all these supposedly clever people in treasury and stuff like that it's just extraordinary it, it is in fact I'm, I'm writing a couple of articles at the moment going through a, a number I, I call them ownership illusions which are uh, essentially similar things we've got these you know naming conventions for things that trick us into thinking something is what it's not um, and once you sort of cut through that you can really see that a lot of what we think is is not based on a consistent underlying logic but really just um, going with the flow of what people are saying and what people are calling different things so so there'll be more to discuss on this soon oh great look forward to that very good i think that's uh that's it for today look forward to chatting again soon hopefully with better audio quality on my end sounds good see you jonathan see ya Thank you.